Hello and welcome to The Haunted. I'm Freddie Young. And I'm Vanessa Mitchell. And we are joined today by the resident Sergeant Major. <laughs> hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Um, so this will be the final episode of a bumper movie week that we have done for you. And I, I like to think we're probably ending with the biggest... I would say, maybe. Mm. Well, um, certainly the most famous. Yeah, certainly the most famous. It's a name that everybody knows. Everybody has heard of this place. Um, or, or definitely have seen the film. And today we will be visiting um, the Amateurville Horror. The Amateurville Horror Story. Yeah, and we are everything it entails. So obviously... As always, we are here to give you the truth, the real story behind it, and some facts maybe that you didn't know beforehand. I know it is quite a famous case, but hopefully we can teach you all a little something. And so we're going to start off with our Sergeant Major giving us some... Historical. Historical facts. context about the house and maybe some of its... Uh, infamous goings-on. So, Sergeant Major, over to you. Oh, thank you very much, Freddie. Right, okay, guys. So, Amityville, um, I am just going to give you the basics because the other bits are definitely over to Vanessa and Freddie. So, uh, Amityville, or otherwise known as 112 Ocean Avenue, is in Long Island, New York, and was built in 1927. Beautiful house, believe it or not. Yeah, it is beautiful. Five bedrooms, three bathrooms, over three floors, it's got its own swimming pool. It's situated alongside a canal uh, where there was mooring for boats, uh, and it has its own boathouse as well. I yeah, really the ideal, perfect, beautiful family home. So in 1965, it was given to Robert and Louise Defoe. Now, Louise Defoe, her father was a local wealthy businessman and he bought the house for them. Oh. So the pair of them moved into it. So they were 34 at the time and they it was, like I say, the perfect family home and they took with them their children. So at the time, in 1965, there was nine-year-old Dawn, uh, three-year-old Mark, four-year-old Alison and John Matthew was either and i'm not quite sure of this because the dates aren't 100 percent. he was either a newborn or about to be born so louise's dad was a partner in a car dealership in brooklyn and uh in later years both robert and their oldest son robert worked there so they spent five sorry nine pretty unremarkable normal years living with their families going to work doing what they were doing uh, until the fateful night of november the 13th 1974. so their oldest son ronald is now 24. Uh, unfortunately he had a little bit of a habit and he was a believed to be a regular user of both heroin and lsd and he also worked at his granddad's car dealership he went to work as he normally does. And when the rest of the employees turned up at half six in the morning, they found Ronald sitting in his car asleep at the wheel. And he said, you know, he just had a, a heavy night and he'd just gone straight to work. So, you know, they woke him up, they opened up the shop and everything carried on and Ronald did his normal day's work. Ronald's dad, Robert, however, didn't turn up. 
Uh, he was expected, but it wasn't unusual because they thought he was actually possibly off on a hospital appointment with one of the other kids. So Ronald did his day at work and then he went home. When he got home, he then allegedly came across the bodies of his parents and he ran to a bar some 10 blocks away where his friend was having a drink. And about half six that night, he burst into the bar, grabbed his friend and said, quick, quick, you've got to help me, someone shook my mum and dad. So the bar owner then called 911 and sent the police round. By the time the police got there, Ronald was there with his friend and a couple of other people from the bar. And consequently, police found everybody dead. So uh, Ronald's parents had both been shot twice. 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Alison, 12-year-old Mark and 9-year-old John Matthew had all been shot once. And all bodies were found lying face down in their beds. Yeah. They, later evidence proved that actually Alison and Louise must have been awake when they died, but the boys and the father weren't. Um, he then, and under questioning, said, I came home and found him like that. I know it must be something dodgy my granddad's up to because there was potential rumours around mafia links. It must have been a mafia hitman. And he actually even named somebody. However, over the course of the next 24 hours, it became very clear he's constantly tripping himself up with inconsistencies in his story, and he finally admitted that he drugged and shot them all himself. Then he went and had a bath and got rid of his gun and all the cartridges and shells and all the bullets and his clothes. So it was, it was literally 24 hours before he crumbled. I think within the first few hours of being questioned, he asked the police how he arranged to um, collect his father's insurance money. So it's kind of a bit of a giveaway, really. Uh, the defence argued an insanity plea, and the prosecution said that he had an antisocial personality disorder, but he was aware of his crimes at the time. He was eventually sentenced to six life sentences, each to run between 25 years to life. Uh, in the subsequent years that he was in prison, every single one of his appeals and parole hearings were all refused, and he died fairly recently, actually, March of yeah. this year, that's 2021, age 69. The house then stayed empty till 1975, so it's not much longer at all, and the Lutz family bought it, and they paid $88,000 for it, as was. So that means it included everything, all the furniture, everything that was there of the night of the murder everything was still there they bought it lock stock and barrel they only stayed in the house for 28 days between december 1975 and january 1976 so this is where it then suddenly comes into the realm where most people know so the events of that 28 day stay were then picked up by an author who wrote a book based on those events and that obviously was called the amateurville horror and that was published in 1977 uh, then of course hollywood came knocking and they adapted the book and it then came into the film that we all know as Amityville, which was actually uh, released in 1979, I think. Um, I don't need to go into any of that. That's obviously down to Vess and Freddie. They've got yeah, that Yeah, that's our job. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, just to kind of finish it all off for you. Um, in 2006, George Lutz uh, admitted that although a lot of what was in the book was true, 
an awful lot of it was uh, massively exaggerated. Yeah, exaggerated by the author. He said, yeah. as we know, yeah. what what I said was completely span out to a crazy story, yeah. which we, we will discuss. Yeah. But yeah, again, That's something right. where you tell your story, then they make yeah. up a load of stuff, and then, yeah. it, and, you know, well, it's based on facts. It's like Chinese whispers, is it? Somebody yeah. says something, and by the time it gets three down, it's... It's, it's not so much like Chinese three. whispers. They deliberately fantastic it for that yeah. purpose yeah for, for the book absolutely and then of course that was done again for the film yeah multiple times yeah. i think of the research but, i've done a lot of research the last few days lots um but both of them um i think were quite anyway i'll get to that one sort of freddie but quite yeah. credible and didn't want to embellish that story but as these things happen it was taken out of their hands Absolutely, as as often these things these do, you know, these things tend Indeed. to grow legs and, and yeah. run away with themselves. Um, it was last sold in twenty seventeen for six hundred thousand dollars, which actually was a two hundred thousand dollar less. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. still a still a. Yeah, other properties in that area usually sell for around one point two to one point three million, so you can still see it's still a bargain. Um, it's only been bought and sold four times since 1975 yeah so a lot of people have lived there have lived there for a long time the one of the sets of owners had it have gone on record as saying um it was the entire thing was a whole hoax they uh publicly called out the sisters as being liars and the priest who carried out the exorcism has they claim since that event um been sidelined by the catholic church and banned from carrying out any further religious ceremonies oh, except okay. because they were unhappy with what happened and the fact that there was possibly not enough evidence for it to be as genuine as they thought. However, you have to bear in mind that that's coming from somebody who was living there and they may have wanted to... Um, this lady that you're talking sell about. The entire thing yeah. Because perhaps they wanted to sell so she was it. selling it. The lady you're talking about yeah. was really yeah. quite harsh against yeah. everything and I've looked yeah. at this in depth I don't normally that's normally Freddie's job normally but for this story I've actually spent hours and hours on it and I think she was quite aggressive and hostile saying it it was all their fault it was all down to them and it wasn't like you say she probably wanted to sell it um you know and she was very very anti the priest and everything but in my hours and hours and hours of genuine research and original interviews I think she uh, no, I don't believe a word she says personally. And also, if you're going to sell a house, you're not going to say it's still haunted anyway. So for it, me, well, it's unlikely, she can do it? one. It's be harder to sell under those circumstances. So there you go. There's your background, guys. Thank you. you. Can you, do it and you can have a nice little delve down the rabbit hole. And a rabbit hole it is. It's <laughs> a bloody great fox and badger hole. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, one, yeah. Jesus. So, uh, yeah, just, just tie a rope round your ankles so someone can pull you back out. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness. Well, listen, yeah. thank you as always. Thank you. Ciao for You're now. You're welcome. Bye. That was the Sergeant Major with some interesting history, I suppose. Mm. There was bits in there that I didn't know because it's, it is such a famous story. And obviously doing the research, she was saying things that, you know, was clicking for me. But let's talk about the film itself. So there are, and I'm going to go through... The whole list of every single Amateurville film they have made. So obviously you have the Amateurville Horror. Then you have Amateurville 2, The Possession. Then you have Amateurville 3D. Amateurville 4, The Evil Escapes. 
The Amateurville Curse. Amateurville, it's about time. Amateurville, a new generation. Amateurville Dollhouse. Then they remade the original Amateurville Horror. Then there's the Amateurville Awakening. And then the Amateurville Murders. Yeah, I mean, it's so... So I, I think they have absolutely milked it for all it's worth. <laughs> the thing is, you know, with all these movies, um, a lot of it is obviously made up. Um, well, obviously, everything from the Amateurville 2 is false. Well, even the Amateurville 1, when you watch the original interviews with um, the, the Lutz parents... They, um, it's actually quite interesting. They actually say stuff that's not actually in the movies, certainly not the, the ones that I've seen. Um, and I think that happens anyway, but it's like they, you know, the, the guy who wrote that, and there was issues about that, and that did all come out, you know. Um, it was set up by Ronald Defoe's solicitor, apparently. Um, but, you know, you know they, they, they did lots of interviews at the time. Um, and there's lots of stuff out there that you can Google where you can listen to the original interviews, um, original radio interviews, the priest, um, the Lutz family, and, you know, the people that were involved at the time, which, to be honest, when you watch the movie, you'd never really delve into it that much to find these interviews. Um, but they are out there. They're, they're definitely out there to listen to. So I think it's one of those um, that, you know, everything's gone a, gone a bit crazy. But but I think as, as with all Hollywood movies that are based on true stories or, you know, based on factual events and stuff, there has to be an element of embellishment. Now, personally, for us, having experienced our own ghost story, we would yeah, say... We understand, yeah, we would say that the truth is scarier than what they show yeah. you on the film. But for the audiences at home, it's a tried and tested formula. It works because, listen, I've got, I've got the figures of what this made. So in, on its release, they had a budget of $4.7 million and they grossed. And this is, remember, this is like oh, late 70s, early 80s. $86.4 million they made. So, you know, they've made a hefty thing of it. Mm. And I think... Since that point, there's been some real great horror films, most of which are, you know, based on, loosely based on something. And they always do really well because people like it. People like a ghost story. I think, but starting from the original story, what, what, what I've read and found that's quite interesting is when the police turned up at the house, they of course, spoke to every single neighbour within God knows how many miles. Nobody, not one of the neighbours said they heard gunshots. Now, how many gunshots were there? Six? Well, two. No, um, two each for the yeah, parents and then one for the... So yeah, there six. is... No, seven. Okay. So not not a soul heard any of the gunshots. And my not understanding is as well, is it's not... It, weren't, it was a... It was... Um, I've got the... I've, <laughs> further on in, in yeah. my research, I've got what type of gun it is. And it's not a little... It's not a little... Yeah, it was quite a powerful pistol, weapon. Yeah. Um, also, it does say... I mean, obviously, our historian said different, but it does say that um, all of the bodies were found face down and which would lead them to believe they were all asleep. None of them woke up. Now, obviously, she said it was later discovered that two were possibly awake. But on the research I've looked at, it says that they're all asleep. Nobody heard the gunshots. 
none of the kids woke up. I mean, when you're banging off some guns, surely somebody's going to wake up. I mean, maybe two woke up, but I don't know why um, the rest didn't, to be honest. Um, I, I think as, and that's, because it's such a big and famous story and there have been so many articles, shows, documentaries about it, there is a hell of a lot of conflicting information. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the some of the things you've said conflict with what my research has done. So obviously, it depends what source you go with. But I think you know, if you find a again find a happy medium with it all, and you'll get some kind of truth from that. So I'm gonna delve in now. Yeah. And give you an overview of the film because yeah. obviously, I can imagine for some of you it may have been some time since you've seen the original or even the remake and i want to give you a, a just a, a very quick overview so the film so we go to early hours november 13th 1974 and ronald defoe jr murders his entire family with a, with a shotgun at their home in amateurville new york it then flashes forward and we're a year, a year later and George and Kathy Lutz, a young married couple, move into the property. So it, it says, you know, that George appears not to be strong of faith, but Kathy is a Catholic in yeah. name, at least. Yeah. And she has three children from prior marriage, Greg, Matt and Amy. The couple turn to Father Delaney to quickly bless the home. But Delaney encounters troubles in trying to bless the home, including a room full of flies out of season, violent stomach sickness, and later blisters on his palms where trying to make a when trying to make a phone call to Kathy at their home. And that's a really famous scene when all the flies are coming well, at the Well, doing the research, um, I've actually seen an interview with this, vic with this vicar. There's only ever one ever done. And he said, yes, um, that the, the blisters on the palms. Um, so his interpretation is pretty much how the film had it. So, yes, and I think as well I read that um, there were flies. Um, there wasn't like a whole room filled to the brim. There was an unusual amount is what he said. You know, like if but you wanted, if you wanted into a room and there was 10 flies, I'd go, oh, that's a bit odd. But it's not as if it's it's filled to the rafters with flies. So, you know, no, and that goes some way of, you know, uh, Hollywood fantasticalness and making it look I mean, more that, than it that, is, maybe. In, in the interviews with the Lutzes, they asked the vicar to come back a few more times and he refused to, and they didn't think he helped them enough. They did, they, they wanted more of his help and he would not go back in the house. So, you know, it's... Right, so back to the film. Yeah. The uh, vicar, um, this, this all, all the activity stops when the door is opened and a voice whispers, get out. Now... We'll get into that again further along down the line. He rushes out the house when the voice yells at him and he decides to continue helping the Lutz family. Delaney is later involved in a car accident resulting from a mysterious malfunction and he becomes frustrated at the lack of support from his superiors to, to help him out. He ultimately appears to lose his faith, becoming blind and having a breakdown. Uh, so as well then, Kathy's aunt is a nun and she comes to the house one afternoon but becomes really ill. George starts to kind of change and he starts to shift and he becomes angry and Which is cold. For... And he becomes obsessive with 
splitting logs and keeping the fireplace going. Also, they said as well, he changed towards her children. He was a very good stepdad in, at the start. And then his temper, and he changed towards his wife and the kids. And apparently so did hers as well. They became quite hostile towards their kids. So we we'll go, we, we go into that, because this, is this isn't what happened. This is what they show in the film. Right, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so then there's an engagement party, and the money that they would use to pay for the caterer goes missing and then the babysitter who's looking after uh, the children is locked inside um, a bedroom closet by an unseen force further unexplained incidents occur and one of the one of the boys i, I don't know which one it is his hand gets crushed uh, from a, a window, mm. um, I don't know how best to describe it. The sash windows. Sash windows. And his hand gets crushed by that. And then they, they focus a lot on, as well, that Amy has an imaginary friend called Jodie. Yes. Who seems to be not... Which appeared as a pig. Yes. And it's she catches, she finds it, it's a red-eyed swine outside the uh, second story window. And even the, even the family dog, Harry... He scratches until his paws bleed at a, a wall in the basement. Yeah, yeah. So things things get worse and George's business begins to suffer because he's not turning up and the business part partner is concerned and along with him and his wife, who's she's a bit sensitive to the paranormal, um they are intrigued when they when they go to the house of what she's feeling what she's seeing and then while in the basement of the house carolyn starts demolishing the wall with a hammer revealing a small room behind the wall discovering the damage george takes down the rest of the wall observing a small room with red walls mm. carolyn in terror shrieks that they have found the passage to hell only her voice then starts to sound like the priest throughout all of that as well, ongoing throughout the film, George persistently wakes up at quarter past three in the morning. Yep. Which is significant. We'll go on to that. And he gets a feeling that he must go and check the boathouse. So he's out mm. roaming all, all hours of the night. Kathy as well suffers with nightmares. And she's in these dreams. She's kind of seeing details and replaying of the killings in the home. Yeah, yeah. So then they, they go and do some research at the library in county records and they suggest that the house is built on top of a burial ground and that a known devil worshipper had once lived on the land and had practised, you know, the satanic rituals and stuff in the area. She also discovers the new clippings about the Defoe murders and notices that Ronald Defoe. She wouldn't. She looks they, like they, they did. They did know. But this is, I'm talking to you about the film. Right. This is what happens in the film. So uh, in the film, that uh, so many since I've seen it, they're portraying that they weren't supposed to know them. Well, she's finding out at, at yeah, the library. So stuff. it portrays them as supposed to know. So everything comes to um, a big climax on a stormy evening when blood starts oozing from the walls and down the staircase. Jodie, the imaginary friend, um, appears as the, the, the big red-eyed pig and is seen through the window. And George attempts to kill the children with an axe. Mm. 
Mm. Um, but Kathy gets there in time and he kind of regains himself and he feels himself again um, after falling through the basement stairs into a pit of black sludge. <laughs> um, then basically that they, you know, they get in the car and drive off and leave the house. And that was their kind of, again, as with my, as with my synopsis in most of uh, the films we've done, not the, not the most detailed <laughs> account of what happens because listen, how am I meant to cram like an hour yeah, and forty minutes yeah, in, into, into, yeah. into five minutes of me telling you? So I'm just going to go on the assumption that nearly everybody has seen the Amityville Horror, and I think that's a fair assumption to go on. And and if you haven't, then you and if you haven't, it. get to know, get watching. We recommend it. Oh, I don't know. Would you say have you seen the remake? Yeah. Um... I enjoy the remake. It's so very handsome. It's very handsome. Yeah, it's got I nice enjoy the remake. I remember seeing the first one, obviously, a long, long time ago, and of course that was a big box off. I mean that they were queuing up the street and through the towns to get to see this first movie in the seventies at the time. Um, yeah, I haven't seen all of them. But no, I've seen I've seen the original. I've seen the remake. But to be honest, if you gave me all the DVD, you know, or all on Netflix. And said, right, watch them. You had time. I would watch them all. So, because I'm so interested the, in that. The, but the original or the remake? I'd watch all of them again. I'd watch all of them because I think it's such a fascinating case. But if someone's only going to pick one, the original or the remake? Um, I'd probably do the remake. Yeah. The original's a bit dated now, isn't yeah, it's, it? Yeah, but exactly, it's dated. It's a bit dated. So, obviously, as the Sergeant Major mentioned... All of this is based on a book called The Amityville Horror, and it's by a man called Jay Anson. And this was published in September 1977. So this is, you know, it's about two-ish years after everything that has gone on. With, with us in an interview with this fella, or are you going to talk about that? Because I'm not quite sure what you've got queued up to talk about. But with um, the Lutzes, there was an issue with him and, and the book. And the Lutzes went out on TV shows and said, no, a lot of that never happened. So they weren't claiming that blood was coming and greens, you know, whatever the book. A lot of it was completely embellished. And apparently he he, he said he had kind of permission to, to, to just go with it. And I think, again, we talk about this every podcast. It's a shame because if they had have stuck to the real facts and not made up so much stuff it would be a completely different story and, and, and probably a better one you know focus but anyway you know so i won't go into huge massive detail with it but um the book is supposedly based on the true story of the lutz family and what they experienced during their time at 112 ocean avenue so obviously, like uh, Sergeant Major said, they moved in December, and they bought it for a bargain price. Yeah. As and it's a it's, it's a beautiful home. It's a five bedroomed house built in a Dutch colonial style. If anyone's interested, and in a very salubrious area, by all accounts, this was an expensive area to live in for the. It was. It's, it's nice, and it's it yes. still remains. Yeah. Um, and it has that very distinctive roof and the real famous windows. Yeah, which have now been changed because they're yes, they they, have. they've been changed now. But um, but again, you know, an iconic piece of imagery there. Uh, so yeah, it had swimming pool, boathouse located on the canal. You've heard all of this. 
Um, they did as well. They did have a dog, and he was called Harry. Harry yeah, yeah. So that was nice that they kept his name and didn't call him like I don't know, Bingo. Yeah, Fido. <laughs> Fido. Fido the dog. Um, but yeah, so they they moved they moved into the home, and a lot of the furniture that the Defoe family had and owned. I think it was. Pretty much still, all I, of it. I think they moved into a ready-made yeah, house. Yeah. Uh, now, I've personally, for me, they even actually had the beds that all the family were killed in. Not the mattresses. They were still there. Yeah. No, the mattresses, because of course the, they were blood. Yeah. But even the beds, the bed frames, were all still and there. And that, to me, is a. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. But I suppose God, I wouldn't. But then, but then. But I suppose it's like buying second hand. But you know, would you buy that sofa no, if you knew someone no, got shot on it? No, you wouldn't. But then it was in the seventies. They, you know, didn't a have a great deal, deal of money. Uh, they didn't probably believe because, like I say, and in fact, they actually both were relatively religious. Um, of the research I've done, I know the sergeant major said he wasn't particularly religious. But he was actively encouraging the priest to come back throughout the story, which would tell, we'll get onto that, which would tell me he, he actually quite was. But even so, they did accept all the furniture. Yeah. Maybe they thought, fantastic, you know, blinding, you know, this, and didn't think too much about it. Well, maybe their stuff didn't go, do you know what I mean? Maybe they... <laughs> no, it would have... It actually says they spoke to their children extensively about moving into this house. They spoke to their three kids. They were aware of the murders. Yes. It's yeah. a real story. And on the interviews I've watched, the Lutz family said, no, we spoke to them about it extensively and they were cool with it. They, but as it transpired, after they moved in a little while, the kids were quite bullied at school and saying, you're in the murder house. But at the time, they walked in with a fresh mind and they didn't mind about the furniture. They weren't bothered about the murders. It was just a, a fantastic fresh start in an amazing area. And went in a stunning house, and they all came in with a good, clean heart and an open mind, and they didn't even think anything untoward, which shows quite a lot about. Yeah. So. The, so they. So they. Yeah. Like I said, they are fully aware of what they're going into, and and they've come. They've found peace in that, and they've. Yeah. So. Either just before or during the you know the moving process, a friend of the family says. I think before you before you stay here, just have the house blessed. Yeah. So George is a non-practicing Methodist, mm. and so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think has a great deal of knowledge as to what a kind of blessing or a, a, a clearing I'm, would look like. Um, but Kathy is a non-practicing Catholic, from, so he's a bit more knowledgeable. I know from the shows I've watched with him on the interviews the last few days. He welcomed it. He said, yes, okay, fine. Um, maybe she said, you have to, whatever. But he, in his interviews, he said, okay, fine, great. You know, what harm can it do? Yes, that, that's all right. He wasn't anti it in any way. So George knew a Catholic priest and he was called Father Ray and he carried out the house blessing. Mm. Um, but it does say that in Anson's book, the real life priest, Father Ralph J. Pecoroi. Oh yeah, Pecoraro. Is referred to as Father Mancuso, and that was for privacy reasons. Yeah, so, of course, yeah. Um, that's that's the name. So the the father was a lawyer, 
and a judge of the Catholic court and a psychotherapist who lived at the local Sacred Heart Rectory. And he arrived to perform the blessing while George and Kathy were unpacking their belongings on the afternoon of December 18th, 1975. Now, let me tell you, what a stressful time to move with three kids. Yeah. Right on top of Christmas. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, glutton for punishment. I suppose they thought that would be amazing when I have Christmas in our beautiful new yeah. home. Let's get in quickly before Christmas. Yeah. So uh, he went into the building to carry out the rites. And when he flits the... And this is... This is the account that is written in the book might not necessarily be the, the father's... We know the book and the movie yeah. is a lot of poetic licence. Yeah. Um, uh, when he first flicked the holy war and began to pray, he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out. So again, that is reflected in the film. Um, and, we, you know, you, as we go through this, very briefly, you'll see parallels between the film and the book, but you might not necessarily pr see parallels to the actual... But story. you think about it, I've had many EVPs in the cage saying get out. Most paranormal investigations, um, you you know, you hear that on EVP. So it's definitely not out of the way that he would have heard it in the Amityville house. Yeah. So I go with that. Um, so he left pretty sharpish and he didn't mention it to George or Cathy. Yeah. But on reflection, Christmas Eve rings them to say... I think you need to stay out of the second floor room where he'd heard the voice. And this was the former bedroom of Mark and John. Okay, if I can just interject again. The interviews I've watched with the priest and the Lutzes, they rang him again and that's when he gave the advice. He didn't ring them and volunteer it. They rang him again. Stuff is still happening. We need your help. And he basically said, I can't really help you, but you need to see, you know, you must stay out of that room. Which the Lutzes had, um, Mrs. Lutz had as a sewing room. Yeah, I was going to say. She, yeah, it was they, her sewing room. They planned room. to use it as a, you know, as a sewing room. It was actually in the, you know, it was actually set up, and she 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 was using it as a sewing room, and that was the room that the children were murdered in. Um, yeah, Mark. Yeah, so he felt he felt. But the that phone call is cut short. Um, through no fault of either of them, static, and it just falls dead. Well, paranormal as usual. To, to, yeah. to restrict yeah. the, the, the communication. The communication. Um, again, not long after this, the priest is said to have developed uh, unusually high fever and started to develop blisters on his hand similar to stigmata. Mm. We, know, we know what that is, don't we? Well, I hope you do. He says, um, actually, that he only ever did one, one and only interview, and he says in his interview... Um, yeah, the blisters came on my palms and he's like, what? He knew it was very dangerous then, yeah. Um, yeah, so we, we move on a little bit. So I think at first maybe things were a bit quieter because I think George and Kathy's experiences differed in the beginning and they are quoted as saying that it was like we were live, each living in a different house. So how one felt was very different to how the other yeah, felt. Yeah, I think when you have a, dem a demonic situation like that, you both spin off into these other parts of yourself that is obviously happening because of the, of the demonic haunting and the situation and the, you know. And I think that's absolutely quite normal. Um, so then we kind of 
fast forward a little bit. So there's the, the book is far far more detailed than what I'm giving you, but I'm giving you snippets. So we're going to kind of go ahead to mid January 1976, and they attempt another blessing of the house mm-hmm. and this is what would end up being their final night the Lutzes have declined uh, during the time that this book was written to give it a full account of the events that took place because they said it was just far too frightening to to ever tell I don't know how I don't know how I feel about that I, I I'd say it probably wasn't true because a lot of the book wasn't true oh yeah I, I don't know how I feel I'd about say that, that wasn't true um, Having had things written about me myself in the cage, believe me, most of it isn't true. So the the Lutzes uh, go and stay with Kathy's mother in Deer Park, which is in New York. It's not too far away, I don't think, from where, from where the house is, um, until they kind of got things sorted with the house. And they claimed that whatever was going on had followed them, followed them there. Yeah. And the final part of Anson's book is describing a kind of greenish black slime coming up up the staircase towards them. And um, yeah, so on January 14th, 1976, George, Kathy and the kids and the dog leave, leaving all the possessions behind. And then the next day, someone come and, and collected all their possessions and to send them off and no he whoever was mo- doing the moving reported nothing yeah it was a few of his friends and his friends again his friend is interviewed and he said well a few of us went and he said we sat there we all had beers and he said he said for some reason somebody had cake with them so he said we all had cake and he said we were just laughing we're in the Amityville house and he said nothing happened he didn't feel anything at all so and they they collected a lot of their possessions, not all of them, but yeah, that was a few days later. Because Mr. Lutz especially, point blank, refused ever, ever to go back in that house again, and never did. Not even to collect his own possessions, or after, when we get into Ed and Lorraine Warren and Hans Holzer and, and everything yeah. else. Um, so, and I think this is maybe why the book doesn't strictly follow 100% the the real story so uh, the book was written after someone called Tam Mosman who was an editor at Prentice Hall which is a publishing house introduced Jordan Kathy Lutz to Jay Anson and didn't work with him directly but what they did do is they submitted 45 hours of tape recorded recollections to him and he used that for the basis of the book it wasn't a him deciphering 45 hours and, and giving you the 100% the true story. Yeah. He's, it's the basis. Of course, because you're never, ever going to get yet. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't written as a non-fiction book. It was written as entertainment. It was an ent- written for entertainment. It was written to... When it says it's based on true story, it means it's the very best skeleton of a story and the rest they can put what the hell they want because it's all covered legally saying based on a true story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll go into a little bit, add a few details in about it, about the murder as well. So, and this is the gun he used. It was a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. Now a rifle and maybe I'm just being ignorant and 
it's because I don't have much experience with well, guns. Well, in England, of course, we don't have any guns. We so don't really, we, we don't so really we don't really know. But my assumption and my knowledge, a rifle, yeah, ain't no silly little. Well, when I was doing play, play pigeon shooting, when you shoot a rifle, it kicks back on your shoulder and it knocks you off your feet. They are powerful weapons. I'm just going to Google literally it. literally the maximum of what I know about. Obviously, because in the UK... Oh, Jesus. Just, yeah, so it's literally like the yeah, I, what you do. Yeah. Just, yeah, so, so it's a powerful weapon. It's a big, big, powerful gun. And like you said that... The neighbours didn't hear anything. And I think for the family not to have woken up, but they do say that he drugged them. But in when they did the toxicology, there was no... But where's the evidence? Because I haven't read any evidence or seen anything about them being drugged at all. I don't know where the sergeant got that from, but I haven't no, seen no, it in I've, my I've, research. No, I've oh, seen it a lot well. mine, but they've done, they did a they, they did a toxicology report on the bodies. And, and were they drugged or not? No. no. Well, exactly, that's what I'm saying. So they weren't, yeah, there was no proof they were drugged. Um, so, Ronald Defoe Senior, um, he was shot twice in the lower back. One bullet exploded into his kidney and exited from his right nipple onto the bed. And the other entered the base of his spine and was lodged in his neck. Um, they've said that he could have been alive from anywhere to a few seconds to several minutes after being shot. Um, the 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 way the bullets went. Yeah, they wouldn't it, have necessarily killed him. It wouldn't unless it's like yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, um, the waistband of his shorts was pulled down a bit, indicating that he'd moved upward. As it like so, he's struggled up, which indicates then that he was alive for a little bit after. Well, he'd seconds been shot. probably. Yeah. Writhing. That could have just been him writhing just immediately after being shot. So then we move on to Louise, and this is you know represented as mum in, in, in the story. And the bullets entered her right flank and chest. One bullet landed on the mattress and the other came out the middle of the chest and re-entered her left breast and wrist. The bullets shattered her rib cage. A splintered bone had destroyed most of her right lung, diaphragm and liver, so most of her central kind of organs. Although face down, her chest was slightly raised from the bed and her body was turned to the right. The medical examiner said that she could have been alive for several minutes after being shot, perhaps as many as 10, and her position indicated that she may have woken up, raised her upper body off the bed and possibly looked toward the bedroom doorway in the killer's direction. So yeah, that's what yeah. the kind of, that's where that thing of, oh, she was awake, that, you know. Yeah, but yeah. as with all things, they have to, it's guesswork. They're not there. They don't know 100%. Yeah, yeah. And it's like educated guesses. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so then we move on to the children. Um, so we move on to Mark and John, who are 12 and 9. And they were both shot in the back at close range. The medical examiner determined that the killer stood between the beds less than two feet away. The bullets penetrated the liver, liver, liver diaphragm, lungs and heart of each. The bullets went through the boys' mattresses and into the box springs. John's spinal cord was severed, which may have caused involuntary twitching <coughs> in the lower body. Yeah. But do you know what? And he actually says, uh, Ronald Defoe, he remembers watching his the boys' legs going. But again, they said because he was um, shot in the spinal cord, that would be 
a human body reaction. But he said, I remember seeing his legs. Uh, yeah, up and down. it was the same but as if, you, if, it, if people are decapitated, yeah. their eyes still move yeah. and, and stuff. But do you know what? Well, what's mad about all this is if you're going to execute your family, shoot them in the head so there's no even 10 seconds of realization. You know, it's your parents, it's your siblings. If you're going to exit, why not shoot them? So they don't even know anything, but they're all shot in the body. And it makes me no, think, so we move on now to Alison. Well, there's only one left, yeah. Her, there's her. two more. Oh, was there two more? Right, okay. Um, she's 13, and she was shot once in the face from low, no less than two feet away. She may have turned around and saw the muzzle of the gun, yeah, and the bullet entered her left cheek and moved her right ear. It then tore it into her brain, damaged her skull. The bullet exited and ripped through the mattress, hit the back wall and ricocheted to the floor. And then we move on to Dawn. And she's aged 18. She was shot at the back of the neck from two and a half feet. The bullet entered just below her left ear and blasted through her left temple onto her pillow. The left side of her face collapsed and, you know, Leave it to the imagination. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't a, a pretty, pretty sight, is what we would say. Mm. And that's kind of the details of the injuries that the family did suffer. Mm. And I think when you have something so evil happen in a home, it does leave a print. Oh, of course, Jesus. I mean, a lot less stuff than that would leave a print. But that is. Okay, so let's let's get to the real the crux of it. Um, was it because he was off his nut? Was it because he hated his family? Or do you think, you know, which is popular belief, I think, you know, especially amongst serious researchers of this case in the paranormal world, that it was some type of demonic entity, energy, possession that made him do it, basically? Um... Because that's all really anyone wants to know. Why did he do it? Was it, you know, because he he claims not to remember anything about it at all. He said he doesn't know, he doesn't remember. So, yeah, so obviously he claims that he'd heard voices and, and, yeah, and, heard and voices they told him, him that, to no, that the family were plotting against him and that made him paranoid and then he said he was possessed. I think, unfortunately, his story changed so many times. Um that I struggle to believe him. I Do I think he suffered with a mental illness? 100%. Do I think that a mixture of drugs and, you know, lifestyle play a lot into it? Yeah, massively. Um, I personally don't feel it was, you know, a demon or, you know, something taking over him, possessing him or someone telling him you to see, do it. You see, the investigators, i.e. Ed and Lorraine Warren will say completely different. Um, they felt that there was a very significant demonic entity in that house and literally a, a nest. And that um, there was this, the night the police were there, was this rancid, distinct, um, you know, the demons come with a horrific smell. So they said, you know. Yeah, and, but, the, but the Warrens went there after all this had happened. Yes. So... And Hans Holzer. So I, 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 I think that unfortunately he was a very disturbed individual. And when you already suffer with a mental illness and you add kind of 
drugs like heroin and LSD that already alter your brain anyway, I think it is, it unfortunately is... Yeah, I mean, I understand the science a... and maths of that can happen. Of course, that, uh, that, would, that, would, that would probably be most murders. But I also understand that, you know, if he even, like, you know, psychokinesis, if he, if he manifested this demonic... I, I don't know. Listen, we, we know it's possible. I just think potentially something was there to influence his state of mind. I'm um and because he was so the other up, way. Was easily influenced. I'm the other I just, way. Well I just think living in the cage, I'm telling you, things happen to you to completely I mean, okay, we know he's on drugs, we know that. But then but, but then, some, but, but then somewhere said, like yeah, the cage was, has a dark history already. So that home now it now has a dark history, but it didn't have a dark history before what he did. So no, but it doesn't mean to say. I mean, no, I, and I know that, and I know starts that starts from somewhere. So, so you know, demons and you know, negative entities and everything. But why can't someone just, just be evil? Why has it got to be a demon? No, because there are just evil people yeah, in this that. world. Yeah, I. But but I know that we've discussed this before on other shows. I know, and I get it. But I think sometimes I'm not saying this. Is, I'm, I'm playing. You know, excuse the pun, devil's advocate here. But I know that. It's, it's easy to look at the science way when there's murders, but I think sometimes, you know, there oh, are influences, 100%. and we, we've done I've, stories I've, on that before. I think there are so many family annihilators. That are influenced by some type of entity, whether it's demonic or negative. I, I, I believe that. I have to believe that because of the way I've... My I life don't know. I, I personally, for this one, I'm saying no. You're saying yes. Well, no, I'm not saying yes. I'm saying we can't rule it out. Oh, oh, listen. At all. I'm not. I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying, for me, evidence-wise and personal belief, I feel that otherwise, and I think maybe you're the other way. Would you say that's fair? I would say, I would say that there's potentially a lot more to these, like you say, family annihilator cases, including this one, that there is bad involved that we don't understand or or get, and, uh, and influ influences from the dark that definitely, I think, plays a part in a lot of these things. Listen, even if the dark played a part on him taking excessive drugs and, and being this, you know, yeah. I just, I just, I, if, we, if we look at, the backstory he came from, you know, as far as we know, he wasn't abused. He wasn't um, quite an affluent, neglected. And... He he came from a relatively happy family, and all the all the witness statements at the time, his friends and family said, "Well, yeah, we we know he was a bit of a nightmare, but he 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 never used to beat the hell out of his his siblings. He wasn't murdering animals in the garden. He wasn't beating the shit out of fellas no, in the pub. No, but I, he, he, but he, he was a, they do. Um, dad was not a particularly nice man and no and he had issues the dad yeah yeah and i think you know being the eldest had he maybe would have taken the brunt of that yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah and i yeah. think it had a lifetime of seeing the abuse that his mum received yeah and you know listen it's we could debate the human psyche all night. You see, we won't know. You see, the thing is, we'll never, you will never, never know. know. And, you know, he, he, he passed away recently, so... I mean, I just ago. know it's possible. 
I'm not saying this is in this case, but I know for a fact it is possible. And you know that for a fact as well. Oh, yeah, We've definitely. had stories before where it's like, Jesus, it literally can't be anything yeah. else. But I, yeah, I don't know. I think this one is just, I don't know, there's a bit too much in this. I mean, I think who's left out this story quite a lot is um, a man called Hans Holder, Holzer. He's probably researched more cases than the Warrens. I think the Warrens are more famous than him because um, they they just did more famous cases at the time. But I mean, Hans Holder, he's, he's just dropped on Netflix um, a series about his cases. What's revisited. it called? I can't remember, babe. Um, but it's on Hans Holder, it's his daughter and, and a team reinvestigating his, his cases for, from years and years ago. And he was there at the time and he also said, like the Warrens, there was something demonic. Um, you know, there was a lot of investigators went back to house at a time. Of course, we only hear about the Warrens because they were the most, it suited the narrative at the time just to put them in the picture, not Hans or many other people. But their collective um, viewpoint on the house was it was extremely active. They they saw and witnessed lots of paranormal activity themselves, um, and that they definitely felt it was very dark and demonic and had been there for a long time. Well, now, I'll these t- are I'll the t- I will t- of I will tell you about the Warren's time there. Yeah, go so, And is it is this off um, the movie or the book? This is not the book, not the movie. This is from a collection of articles, interviews, yeah. the Warren's own um, yeah. Yeah. notes and stuff. So it was 20 days after the Lutzes initially fled the home. Mm. Um Marvin Scott, a news reporter for Channel 5 New York, um, who had covered the story, uh, the Amityville story, asked the Warrens to investigate the home. So a team of reporters, investigators and parapsychologists were assembled by Ed Warren and they met at 112 Ocean Avenue and the Lutzes refused to have any part of this um they refused to go back into the home and everything now, like that. Now, can I just interject know. there? The interviews I've seen with Ed and Lorraine Warren and the Lutzes is that, this is from their, you know, them speak, speaking live, is that they thought it was just those, them two going to do a seance. When they turned up to do it, there was multiple, multiple people there and they weren't happy about it, but it, it was, wasn't was within their control. So they actually had to go into seance with quite a few strangers they didn't know. So it became, which was quite good in a way because you didn't just have to rely on their, their say-so. So, well, yeah. it, was a, it was a big, like, media circus. Like, yeah. everyone, wanted, just, everyone wanted a slice of the pie. Yeah. Um, so during their investigation, Ed is said to have been physically pushed to the floor while using some religious provocative. Provo- <laughs> I can never say it. You say it. Provocation. Religious provocation in the basement. Mm. Jesus. Which is where they thought that the, the demonic entity. Yes, Lorraine was overwhelmed by the sense of a demonic presence and was plagued by her psychic impressions of the Defoe family's bodies laid among the floor covered in white sheets and a sense of physically being pushed back. The research team, and this is probably one of the most famous pieces of paranormal evidence ever, um, captured the image of a well, what they say is a spirit of a little boy peering from the second 
uh, floor around yes. one of the doors. Um, and I'll post that on the Instagram so you can have a look at it. Most of you would have would have seen. Whether that's true or not, that picture we don't know, but that's associated with the story. Yeah. It was, again, the they also say that the land was used by a man called John Ketchum, and John Ketchum was a practising black musician and musician... Magician. Oi! Black magic. Oh... It's he been was a, a black long... magician. He, he was playing jazz at the time. <laughs> but, you know... Um... It's been a long day. I've been decorated. Right, so he was a practising black magician and he'd had a cottage on the land prior black to... Black magic, the... in other words. Yes, yeah, yeah. prior to the construction of the house and that he had... John had requested that his remains be buried on the property and they're still there. Right, so in the research done... Um... Oh, right, OK. This is your so, back story, yeah. right? Also, also in the research, there was the, sh and our, my pronunciation is Shinnecock Indians, Indians were also at one time had an enclosure on this land and it was used to home the sick and the mad and those in this enclosure were left to die. It was um, a hospice, I suppose. Right, well... Again, in the research I've done, because we haven't got together on our research this week over this, so again... Um, where uh, this this information from these Indians came from Hans Holzer's medium. Now, when this was checked out by the historical people in that area, they said it was on Indian burial ground, but it wasn't uh, the, the Shinnecock Indians. And this information came from Hans Holder, uh, Holzer and his medium. So again, it, I, I don't know why Hans doesn't really have any part of this because he's actually a very well-respected parapsychologist himself. Uh, actually, he, di he died a few years ago himself, I think at the age of 96. But again, this is where, again, you really have to sift through these stories that are so famous because there is so much to learn and understand. And, you know, it's, it's quite a lot of work to do. But Yeah. yeah. So the Warrens believed that the suffering there um, had left the property with a very negative and dark energy and that such a negative history was a magnet for demonic spirits and the supernatural. Yeah. The Warrens believed that these energies directly impacted the life of both of the Defoe family and the Lutzes and the Warrens retri retrieved uh, some of the possessions, some of the Lutzes' possessions and the deed for the property um, and took it back to them. And that's... And that was their kind of involvement with it as well. I know on interviews, and anyone can Google these interviews um, and type in Amityville and uh, the Warrens, and Lorraine Warren says, basically, you could give me that house as a gift and I would not take it. She said it's diabolical, it's demonic, and an absolutely horrific case. And like she said, you couldn't give it to me for free, I wouldn't take it. Um, and these are her words. The interviews are out there. Um, if you want to search for them, you don't have to take the word of the books or the movie because there are interviews. And I wouldn't bother people. taking the word of the book or the movie. No, I, I no. think I think do not if you want the real story. Do your own research. Find some. Find interviews. Find articles. Find you know, and in amongst that, you'll find you'll find the real story and not this. The the best um, thing I've ever seen. I've watched quite recently is on Netflix. It's the real story of the Amityville horror. Um, so just go on to Netflix and you will you will see a lot it's of these Discovery interviews. Plus. Yeah, dis sorry, yeah, yeah. But I watch Netflix on, yeah, 
Discovery Plus on Netflix, but yeah, um, it's Discovery Plus, and it is fascinating because there's so much stuff on there um, that you would never see before. And it's like archive stuff, and they've yeah, dug it out to make this documentary series. Someone has spent a lot of time sifting yeah. through audios, yeah. radio interviews with the Lutzes, with the Vicar, with the Warrens. I mean, it's really in-depth stuff. Yeah, it is. Um, so that that brings us to the end of, of, of the Amateurville Horror. Now, Sergeant Major did say that the house sold recently. And that was in 2017, I think. But it's no longer the iconic 112 Ocean Avenue. They've changed yes, it to 108. So as not to well, I'd say, find you. Any fan is going right, to find it anyway. Right, I'm not being funny. If I could find out that it's 108 and not 112, yeah, anyway, it doesn't yeah. exactly stop me finding it because yeah, it's two yeah, doors up. Yeah. Um, but listen, guys, I think if we've taken anything from this week and taken a real kind of behind-the-scenes look of some of Hollywood's most famous horror movies is that an old, every single one of them is... Take it all with... If it's based on true events, take it with a pinch of salt. Enjoy it for what it is, and that is entertainment. Yeah, and just know you're seeing a movie that is a skeletal based on facts. Yeah. And the rest is... And that's not to, and and, it's, and that's not knocking Hollywood in any way no, because, listen, they've, got, the they've got a job to do, and we love... We love films, we love horror movies, we, we love all of them. that. And But they are made for a purpose, and that purpose is to entertain. And unfortunately, the real story doesn't always fit for the purpose of entertainment. So, or box office tickets. Yeah, or box office tickets. You know, making movies, and I, we have to remember this, is a business, and it's about making money. And the best way to make money? Sell shitload of movies. Appeal to the masses, and I think that that's what that's what they try to do. I think I I look forward to the day that Hollywood breaks the mold on horror films. I think we've had the same regurgitated format for quite a while, mm. um, and I look forward to some groundbreaking stuff coming soon. He says, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to make it personally, right? Um, Thank you, guys. I hope you've enjoyed your bumper week. Have a beautiful weekend. Live long and prosper. That's a bit of Star Trek. Why are you going go to go for for multiply? Yeah, well, that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, just thank you as always, guys. And as always, follow our social medias. Keep up to date with that. It's all in the episode description. Everything you need to know. The Sergeant Major's email address will also be going into this week's. This I'll say this week's this episode. So if you want to contact her with any questions, um, history based though, you're more than welcome to via that email address. But yeah, have a have a fantastic weekend, and we will be back with you next week for something. I don't know what, but we'll be back We've for something. We've so much to, to fit in. There's untold up. stuff like in the pipeline. Yeah. yeah. But listen, uh, if you can't be good, be safe. If you can't be safe, be honest. And uh, yeah, ciao for now. Have a good time, guys. Bye. Bye.